So give a round of applause for Roman Pichler. So good afternoon, and it's really nice to be with you. Thanks for the kind introduction. Uh, try and bring up my slides so you can see what I'm talking about or what I'd like to talk about. Hopefully inspiring and motivating and can act as a 
as a true north and, and be shared by everyone involved in the product um, development effort and, and involved generally in making the product a success. You know, something that basically pulls people along. So that's for me really helpful. And the second thing I'd like to, to have in place is the strategy, the product strategy. And a common definition of strategy is that it's a plan that helps us move towards a common goal, a shared goal, um, typically an overarching goal, an aspirational goal like a vision. Yeah. Now, a strategy for helping people eat more healthily would be to build an app, but there are other strategies available. So we could, for instance, write a book on healthy eating or run a series of workshops that help people become more aware of their eating habits and help them change them. So those would be different strategies. And you know, while I might try the, the app strategy first, um, I may have to pivot and change my strategy along the way. So the strategy is the path towards our goal. It helps set the direction and it helps sort of clarify how we want to achieve our vision. And so without the strategy, I find it really difficult to make informed decisions about the tactics all the details that a product has to, um, that we have to think about in order to achieve product success, create a successful product, right? Um, all the requirements and the user stories, the non-functional requirements, the user interaction, the user interface design, the technology decisions, the architecture decisions, you name it. So um, building a successful product, I think, is a fairly complex undertaking. Attention to the details is important, but Again, I find it very, very difficult to discover the right stories and make the right detailed decisions if there isn't an overarching, valid strategy that directs my efforts. Yeah. Otherwise, it's kind of easy, kind of, kind of, kind of easy for me to get lost in all those details and no longer see the wood for the trees. And in the worst case, uh, we might even be in the wrong wood altogether because the strategy might be the wrong one. So you could say that the strategy connects the vision with the tactics. Um, and, you know, allows you to make sure that the, the steps that you take actually lead you along a meaningful path towards an overarching goal. So that's maybe, maybe one way to look at the, the strategy. Um, another one is to look at the elements, uh, constituents of uh, a strategy, so what makes up a strategy. And I would suggest that first and foremost, the strategy should talk about the, the beneficiaries of your product the customers and the users, those people who should use it, and why they should do it, their, their needs. So the problem that the product should solve, or the benefit it should create. And really make that explicit say, these are the people who should use it, this is why they, they'll use it. This is why we believe they will use our product. Um, the next aspect talks about, talks about the product itself, but not in a holistic fashion, but in a very selective one, um, focusing on a few selected key features, differentiators, those things that make your product stand out and make it special um, and create a reason for the customers and the users to choose it over competing offerings. So, you know, why, why would the customers and users bother with your product? Why don't they use your product or, or purchase your product? And finally, uh, the business benefits. Um, and the business benefits really are the, the goals that you'd like to achieve for the business, for your company, through the product. Um, so the question here is, what's in it for the company? What's in it for the business, right? Why do you create this product? Should it generate revenue, at least at some point in time? Um, or is it there to help sell another product or service? 
do you create it to reduce costs um, to develop the brand? Um, or what is the reason? And can you possibly try and quanti or at least qualify the benefits and put a time frame or a date to it? And by thinking about the business benefits, the business goals that hopefully should allow you to tie the product strategy to the business strategy and show how your product and that your product helps the company execute its business strategy and helps the company grow and prosper as a whole. So for me, those are the three things um, that make up a, a product strategy. I, I, I'd say, you know, those are the three things you should really know before you think about writing user stories and building the actual product and hiring people, you know, starting the development effort in earnest. I think it's very risky to just build something if you don't really have a clue what the value proposition of your product is, or who the customers and the users are, or what might make your product special. So I think the least thing we have to have is at least some, some assumptions. So far so good? Oh, I forgot to mention, if you've got any questions, I'm, I'm not sure how this is going to work with the mics, but I'm happy to take questions whenever you have them. So you don't necessarily have to wait until right the end. I'd hate to just you know, talk on and on and on, and then some of you think like, well, what he said 10 minutes ago, half an hour doesn't make any sense. So far, so good, yeah? So it's nothing special so far, but you know, I've worked with a surprising number of you know, teams and product managers who struggle to answer those simple questions for their products. Good. Uh, now let's look maybe into some factors that help you choose the right strategy and you know, create at least an initial strategy. And so making strategic decisions is really choosing the right path and um, you know, selecting which door we should go through, hence this uh, nice picture, plus I just like the colors. Um, so uh, and the first thing really is to choose your innovation strategy. I rushed through this slide, apologies. Um, now innovation is a big word and, and quite ambiguous. I find you may have very different notions of what innovation is compared to me. That's okay. But there's a really nice, simple model developed by Nunji and Tuff uh, called the Innovation Ambition Matrix, which is built on a quite old model called the Answers Matrix, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, the point here is it's a very simple model that allows us to contextualize some important strategic decisions. So what does the Innovation Ambition Matrix look like? Uh, like this. <laughs> and um, it uh, distinguishes three different innovation groups. The first one is called Core Innovations. Core innovations. So core innovations are those products and services, those assets that serve existing customers, right? So all the products that you have today that generate the majority of uh, today's revenue, your cash cows, those are your core innovations. Um, um, and you know, core innovations is something you probably want to be careful with and uh, treat um, very kindly where you don't necessarily want to experience uh, failure or make any mistakes because, well, you know, they generate today's revenues and profits. Um, so it's more about optimizing them and, you know, keep doing what you've been doing and make sure that you feed the cash cows so they produce the milk they have to, you know? And as I've briefly mentioned, in established companies, the, the core innovations make up the majority of the products. And so many uh, big companies that I've worked with have their business processes, their tools, their structures, you know, virtually the whole company optimized for, for, for dealing with um, core innovations and being good, excelling at core innovations. And this is where things like um, compliance and operational excellence, and in a way do as you're told, you know, doing a good job, going and executing well, really matter.
So those are inc little incremental innovations, um, little incremental enhancements to existing products. Um, the next set is probably a little bit more interesting. Uh, those are called adjacent innovations uh, by Nanji and Tuff. And adjacent innovations basically mean that you enter a new space now, but you leverage existing assets, skills, technologies, knowledge that you have. So classic examples will be to create a brand new product for a market that you already serve and already know. Or taking an existing product to a new market that's new to you. But in both cases now, you deal with much more uncertainty and risk compared to the core innovations. And in both cases, you have to have the ability to address those unknowns and to experiment and iterate at least to a certain extent. And now the ability to make some failure and you know, to accept mistakes you know, is necessary. At the same time, your strategy for those products is likely to contain some assumptions that you have to validate and you may get at least some of the details in your strategy initially wrong. Yeah. Because, you know, you're dealing with, with new things here. So, adjacent innovations uh, require a different outlook, a different mindset, a different attitude, and different ways of working in order to be successful. Um, in a way, it gets even worse with um, disruptive innovations. Well, Nunji and Tuff call them transformative informations, but I quite like Clayton Christensen's term of disruptive innovations, and to me, they're the same thing. Some people talk about breakthrough innovations. Sorry. So disruptive innovations, um, by definition, create a new market. So the challenge here is not only to create a new product, but create this new market. And often established business models don't work very well for disruptive products. So you may also have to find a valid business model and then for some disruptive products like the iPhone or the Nintendo Wii, now disruptive technologies are used. So you may have to deal with new technologies or even develop new technologies like the, um, the little touch screen that the first iPhone uh, leveraged. So disruptive innovations are very difficult to pull off. They need a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of room for failure. Um, the chances of succeeding with them is very low. On the positive side, the growth potential is massive. It has the biggest growth potential. And the expectations for the initial offering, for your initial product that you launch, are going to be very low because you're addressing a new market, you're addressing non-consumption. People who bought the first iPhone were typically people who already had a Nokia or a Blackberry at home, but people who didn't really like the Nokia or Blackberry phones who were offered at the time, back in 2007, or hadn't even you know, couldn't even be bothered to consider purchasing them. So, um, so, you know, the bar is comparatively low for a new offering when you go for disruptive innovation, and it has the greatest growth potential. And that's followed by the adjacent innovations. Adjacent innovations also have a significantly higher growth potential compared to the core innovations, but not as high as the disruptive ones. But in terms of your initial offering, the bar is set, right? Um, you know, if you look at an adjacent product like the Apple Watch, um, Apple had to meet some, some expectations when they launched their product a few months ago. They had to you know, offer a product that is at least as good as the existing products in the market space. They certainly weren't the first ones to offer a smartwatch. And core innovations, core innovations give you all the security of knowing what, 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 what to do and, and how you do it, but they have the lowest growth potential. Right? So sooner or later your cash cards are going to die and you have to replace them. 
So let's uh, take a quick look at some sample products. I've already mentioned them. Um, Macbook and Google Search, in my mind, would be core products. Uh, they generate decent profits for uh, Apple and Google, respectively. Um, Google, Apple Watch and Google Chrome browser would be a, a adjacent innovations, adjacent products. In both cases, uh, the company entered an existing market. Um, and disruptive innovations, examples for disruptive innovations will be the iPhone, the original iPhone, that launched in 2007, and the, the Nintendo Wii, right, the magic one that you could wave, and it's young kids, young, young children, and elderly people, not yet typical video game, computer game players. Now, the interesting thing, which you may have noticed, is that some of those products are no longer disruptive innovations. I mean, the iPhone used to be a disruptive innovation, but these days, it's a massive cash cow for Apple. So successful disruptive and successful adjacent innovations will move down into the core space, and hence, you know, there's a need that you think about, well, you know, should we maybe invest in a new uh, adjacent and a new disruptive innovations? And the two authors of this model actually suggest, uh, as a rule of thumb, that 70% of your investment as a business should go in core, 20% in adjacent, and 10% in disruptive innovations. So, uh, not sure how your company is doing it, but maybe something to reflect on. Yeah. So, for me, it's helpful to understand um, if your product, what, what kind of innovation type your product exhibits. So you understand how hard, how high the bar is set, but you also understand how you have to set yourselves up and how difficult it's likely to be to come up with a valid um, or a validated product strategy. So far, so good? Good. So, um, does anybody know what this is? Say it again, sorry. Supernova, sort of, yes. At the end, we have a supernova. Life cycle of a star, thank you very much. Yes, the life cycle of a star. Um, in fact, the life cycle of the sun, I believe. So, you know, the sun started as this nebula and then became a protostar, and then we have the sun as we have it today, and at some point in time, we're told it's going to become this red giant and then collapse. And eventually, it's going to die, right? And so everything has a beginning and an end, even the sun, even the universe. Um, and that's also true for your products. And you're probably all familiar with um, the model that describes the life cycle of a product, the um, product life cycle model. Um, I'd still like to briefly discuss it with you because I think that it's one of the most important models to get your strategy right. Now, the product life cycle model is um, uh, a model that was established in the 1960s, and it tracks business benefits over time. So traditionally, certainly for revenue-generating products, you'd look at sales and revenue and, and, and say, well, how, does, how is revenue or how has revenue developed over time? Yeah, so you track your key indicator, you could say, and then just look back and say, how's it been developing? Yeah? Now, a typical product lifecycle curve, certainly the curve that you find in the books, roughly looks like this, like a bell-shaped curve. However, the curve of your product may look significantly different. It may be flatter, it may be steeper. So this is not a model that allows you to uh, make any projections about the future. It's, it's not predictive. It's more a diagnostics tool that based on how, you, how, how the benefits of your product have been developing and manifesting themselves, you can make meaningful decisions about where you should take your product and what you have to do. 
what the lifecycle model does is it uh, offers a number of key events or distinguishes a number of key events and certainly stages in the life of your product. And the first stage is the development stage where you take an idea, you explore it, and you turn it into um, an initial product that is then launched. So your, your product is born and becomes generally available for the first time. Um, and then the next stage is called uh, the introduction stage. And even back in the 1960s, people recognized that it's virtually impossible to offer a perfect product right from the start. I mean, you think back, for instance, to the iPhone and all the things that the iPhone couldn't do from taking videos to copy and paste to sending text messages to multiple recipients. I mean, you name it. You know. Or you take the Apple Watch, I think a fairly well-rounded, complex product, but still, you know, the issues around um, battery life, the issues around native applications, or at least they used to be. So it's, it's very, very, very difficult to uh, bring out a, a brand new product and get it just absolutely right. What you typically need is you typically need some time to achieve product market fit to get your product right. And um, you do this by leveraging the feedback and the data you get from the innovators and the early adopters, while at the same time looking forward to the uh, mainstream market and thinking about what are the expectations and what are the goals of the majority of the users and customers. And this, this gap in the market, this difference between the early market and the mainstream market, between the innovators and early adopters and then the majority of the users and customers, uh, was termed the gap by Jeffrey Moore. Right? And so, you know, for many products, I think it's still true that you have to overcome that gap. And then you find that you know, the people who are tech enthusiasts, who are happy to put up with, with some teething issues, some instability issues, or queries not being answered in a timely manner, sometimes not at all, and that's all cool as long as they get a benefit out of using the product, as they get a, have an advantage. But the, the, the majority, uh, the mainstream market, has completely different expectations. You know, they, you know, now people typically expect that your product works out of the box. In fact, that it's easy to discover your product, easy to evaluate it, easy to purchase it if relevant, easy to install it, upgrade it, uninstall it, and so forth. So that all the touch points are right. And so that often means that you need to change your product, and in some cases, you have to even pivot in the, in the introduction stage in order to achieve product market fit. I mean, think of products like YouTube or Flickr, Flickr for instance. YouTube, I believe, started as a um, dating video service, and we all know how it's evolved since then, right? So after product market fit, um, we um, hit the growth stage, and I would suggest that's probably the stage where you'd like to get to as quickly as you can and keep your product for as long as possible because you see a significant increase in the business benefits that your product generates. Um, but at some point in time, you're likely to experience a, a decline. And this is uh, another key strategic decision point where you have to uh, either to say, well, it's been such a good ride and we've had such a lovely time together. Um, us and the product, right? and the product's been so tremendously beneficial in such a good product, but if it now ages gracefully, and at some point in time, it declines and then it dies and we take it off the market, then that's okay. But the alternative path is to say, well, this product surely has more life in it. We can revitalize it, we can revive it, we can rejuvenate it, we can give it new features, we can improve its features. We can bundle it with other products or services, or we can unbundle it and give life to a new product like Facebook did with Facebook Messenger, for instance, a good year ago. 
So those are ways how you can, in a way, um, defer the aging of your product and how you can revitalize your product, at least for a certain um, extent of time. And so the, the big benefit I find of the product lifecycle model is that it helps me understand where is a product and therefore what do I need to do in order to get to growth or you know, to stay in growth or get back into it. Um, and the focus I would suggest of your product strategy should always really be the next lifecycle stage. So for a brand new product, the focus should be let's get to launch. And then the focus should be let's get to product market fit. And then let's stay in growth. Um, by the way, to make things a little bit more real and less theoretical, I thought um, I'd show you this example, which is the life cycle curve of the iPod family um, from 2001 to 2014. And you can see that Apple entered the digital music player market uh, in 2001 with the iPod. I think it was dominated by products like um, the jukebox by a company called Nomad, I believe. Or was it the other way around? Anyway, I forgot. Yeah. So, um, iPods just have just become too dominant. Um, 2002, we see some increase in the sales. So on the left hand, uh, on the, 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 the vertical axis, you see the sales. Um, we see some, an increase because uh, Apple decided to make the iPod Windows compatible. And then a significant event happens. 2003, uh, iTunes is launched. And now the sales jump. And at the same time, Apple introduces the first product variant. You know, typical uh, practice, I'd say strategy practice to keep a product attractive and stimulate growth, creating variants. Um, and then we see further jump, more variants are introduced. Um, the classic iPod, the traditional iPod is enhanced. And then 2007, the iPod Touch becomes available. And in 2008, we probably hit the, the peak. We hit the peak in terms of the uh, collective iPod sales. And from then on, really, it's downwards all the way. So for the last few years, iPod sales have been declining, 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 and declining. And as a consequence, about a year ago, Apple discontinued the original iPod, the iPod Classic. Sadly, yeah. as some say. Um, and I would suggest, I would, I would, I would guess that in, in five to ten years' time, Apple doesn't sell any iPods anymore. Uh, even now, it's difficult to find the iPod product category on the Apple um, homepage. It's sort of hidden, so long as feature has a prominent, prominent product category. Now, when we apply the life cycle stages to this little curve, then we see introduction in the early years, uh, and then growth probably from 2003-4 onwards, maturity, and we're now way into decline. So, um, that was a quick look at the product life cycle curve. And again, my suggestion would be that you reflect on where is your product and its growth and its development in order to contextualize your strategy decisions, in order to say, okay, what do we need to do in order to get into growth? I mean, if you're currently in introduction and you know the, the, the business benefits are flattish, what can you do in order to revive growth or get into growth? Um, or you know, if you're in growth, what can you do in order to keep your product growing and protect the market share uh, and possibly grow the market? Um, the next thing I'd like to do is uh, and show you uh, a way how I like to capture the product strategy. Um, and um, I'm a little bit biased here because this structure here is something that I've created, but that's not the point. I mean, you should always choose the template or the tool that resonates most with you. Um, I find this is simply the, the simplest way that I can express uh, a strategy. Um, and you can see at the top, 
this little tool called the Product Vision Board encourages you to state your vision, your overarching goal, and the, the purpose for building the product, and the, the, the positive change it should create. Um, and I prefer to have a simple one-sentence vision statement or work with a slogan such as healthy eating. I find that quite nice. So, um, yeah, your vision statement. And then you, you can see that the strategy is underneath it. And I've split it into four parts here in this, in this structure. Uh, the target group is really uh, asking who are the customers and the users and does the market exist yet? Do you know the market? Have you served the market before or not? Um, it's likely to have an impact on the validation and research work that you have to put in. And the needs are all about the product's value proposition, um, making explicit what the problem is that you want to solve and what the, um, the main benefit is that your product should provide. So some, some people find it helpful to distinguish between uh, vitamins and painkillers. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with those terms. So vitamins are problems that products that primarily provide a benefit. You could say Facebook is such a such a product, right? Provides you the benefit of staying in touch with family and friends. Even though I also know people who say Facebook's just created a lot of problems, but it's maybe a personal take on it. So yeah, vitamin and there's a, a, a problem uh, solving product uh, referred to as a painkiller would be something like Google search or Bing, right? You want to know more about product strategies or we carry out some internet search. It helps us find out more about the search term, yeah? So this is really all about the main problem or the, the, the key benefit um, that the product addresses. Your product may have several benefits or problems that it provides or addresses, that's okay, but I'd suggest that, you know, particularly for new products or bigger product updates, you focus on the, the, the primary the primary need. Yeah. You know, consider prioritizing the needs, the problems and benefits. The next uh, column allows you to describe what product it is, what the key features are, things that make your product special and stand out. Um, and the idea here is not to really create a mini product backlog or to describe your product completely or, or in detail. It's really about um, selecting those three to five features that do make it stand out, that do make it special. And that's often harder than just writing a long list of requirements, I find. Yeah? So just focus on those three to five things that make it stand out, that make it special. And it's also an opportunity here to consider if the product is feasible from a technical perspective. Um, you know, if the technologies exist and if you have the skills to leverage the technologies or if you can acquire the, the technologies in a reasonable uh, time from it, a reasonable cost. And finally, the business goals, as we've discussed earlier, this is, should, should really state why it's in the interest of your company to invest or continue to invest in the product, what's in it for your business, what the business goals are. And again, I would encourage you to make them explicit. Yeah. So, if you, if you take iTunes, for instance, um, I think iTunes has always earned some money for Apple, but I don't think the margins in selling digital music have been that great. But Apple, um, iTunes has served a more strategic purpose. It's helped shift iPods and, and, and iPhones later on iPhones. So if, you, if, you, if the purpose, the primary purpose, business benefit is to help sell another product or service, I would suggest you, you make it explicit here. Good, so that's a very simple tool, and if it does resonate with you, you can download it from our website. If not, forget about it. It's not about filling out a template. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to ask the right questions and then take the next step. And so the next step, in my mind, is, is to do what uh, this little gentleman does for a living. Does anybody recognize who that is? 
Lots of you, this is good. Yeah, the stick from the BBC series Top Gear. Top Gear went through some rough times, but I've heard that'll be, uh, the series will be back soon. Let's see? So this is the stick, um, and as a product manager, I, I find people usually don't get paid to, to test drive expensive cars around a, a test track, but we get something else to do that can be quite exciting, and that is to validate, to test our product strategy. So um, with your new product strategy, put it to the test, and this is where I feel Lean Startup has a tremendous amount of value to offer, and, and particularly the Build, Mesh, and Learn circle is, is really helpful. So my recommendation would be create your initial product strategy, taking into account the innovation type and the life cycle stage of your product. Um, and then do a little informal risk assessment and identify the biggest risk, or if you prefer, the biggest leap of faith assumption. So for me, the two things are virtually the same. Uh, risk means there's uncertainty that can be damaging and cause a harm, right? And leap of faith assumption is an assumption that we have to prove now, otherwise we may make the wrong decisions. So select the biggest one, and then decide how you want to address it. So um, maybe you want to carry out some direct observation, watch people, maybe you want to uh, talk to people, interview them, maybe you want to create a technical spike to address a, a technical risk. Um, Maybe you want to create an MVP and give it at least to selected customers and users and see how they how they interact with the product or use it in in uh, in the real world in the wild. Um, whichever way you do it, the idea is to, as you probably know, collect the relevant data, helpful data, and then to analyze the data so you can take the right decisions and the next steps. Um, and the idea, by the way, for me, is not to say as product managers we no longer need to rely on our intuition. We no longer need to, shouldn't have any sort of gut feeling or opinions. I think opinions, gut feeling and intuition are valuable, but I think if you only rely on opinion and gut feeling, then it can be dangerous. And I think it's a very healthy approach to balance um, intuition with data, with feedback, with empirical evidence. And so the key um, decisions really when it comes to strategy work is to either persevere, as Eric Ries calls, calls it, which means the strategy as such sounds, valid, what we need to do is maybe some smaller refinements or incremental enhancements, uh, maybe uh, strengthen the value proposition, make it clearer, or um, sharpen the target group, the market, the market segment we want to go after, or maybe a pivot, which means the strategy is wrong, and we now have to change direction, we have to explore a different approach, a different path, you know, think back to the healthy eating example, maybe, you know, creating an app isn't quite so attractive, maybe writing a book will be the better solution, or running those workshops. And the third decision that you can uh, take when it comes to product strategy is to say to stop. To say, well, you know, there's no way that we can make this work. Therefore, we better go and look for a different idea, a different vision. Uh, this vision is unattainable. It's more like a hazy daydream. Yeah. And something we can actually move, move towards. And so, um, by systematically assessing the level of risk that you're strategy has and de-risking it, validating it, um, I would hope that you learn and benefit from your failures and celebrate success. And this brings me to my very last slide uh, to thank you, thank you for your attention. Um, and I very much look forward to your, to your questions and to your feedback. I think we've got about four minutes.